I invite you to join me in prayer. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth, the meditations of our hearts, be always acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Through Christ our Lord we pray. Amen. People of God, the first Sunday of Lent is when the church traditionally remembers the 40-day temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. This annual reminder is intended to give us courage and strength as we face these 40 days of reflection, self-evaluation, and spiritual renewal before Easter. In the story of Jesus' temptation, we're given assurance that Jesus has already walked this path before us. And Hebrews 2 confirms that vision by giving us a picture of Jesus as the pioneer of our faith, as the one who blazed the trail of temptation, the one who pioneered the path through suffering and the cross on the way to glory. And this is the same journey that Jesus takes us on as his disciples a journey that leads us to the cross and finally to the resurrection. It's far too easy for us Christians to want to bypass that journey. We just want to reach the destination. We want the glory, we want the joy of resurrection, but we don't really think it's necessary to follow Jesus through the wilderness, through suffering, through the humiliation of the cross in order to get there. But the preacher of Hebrews wants to assure us that this is the path that Jesus takes us on. And he wants to encourage Christians who are already suffering that their suffering is not an aberration. It's not an oddity. This is not a sign that God has abandoned you. Instead, suffering becomes an opportunity to share in Christ's glory, a chance to follow him down the trail that he's already blazed, stands as a reminder that the path to glory, that there is no path to glory that bypasses the cross. Hebrews says this, in bringing his children to glory, it was fitting that God should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. For both the one who makes holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. Our kinship to Jesus is demonstrated in the fact that he shares our suffering and we share his. And because Jesus enters into suffering as a human brother, our suffering is given meaning and we're given hope that one day suffering will come to an end and give way to life. One of the serious flaws of contemporary theology is that it fails to give a thoroughly biblical account for our suffering. In our instant microwave society, we assume that the glory of God should be immediate, and the path that Jesus took to glory by way of the cross was for him alone. 
So when contemporary Christians suffer, we often look up to heaven and ask, why? Why is this happening to me? What have I done wrong? But historically, the church has recognized that suffering is part of the journey. That if we are truly following Jesus, we will suffer because Jesus is the pioneer of our faith and this is the path he's taken. In other words, Jesus has taken the path of suffering before us and he assures us that there is a way out, that there's light at the end of the tunnel. If we follow Jesus as his disciples, we're given assurance not of instant eradication of all pain, but that pain will not have the final say. After death, there is resurrection. Now, popular theology might tell us that Christians should never suffer. If you're truly faithful, everything should go your way. But the scriptures teach something else, that the beloved Son of God became human. He suffered. He declared his solidarity with us in our pain, and he shared in our death. And it's through that valley of death that Jesus will lead us to new life. The discrepancy between what we want to believe and what the word of God actually teaches us is precisely why the writer of Hebrews wants us to be grounded in the word of God. We need to be grounded in what the scriptures actually teach and not simply in the latest or trendiest view. And so the preacher of Hebrews says, we must pay careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. This message was first announced by the Lord and was confirmed by those who heard him. Hebrews 1, as we saw last week, dealt with the false teaching that Jesus is just a created being, a kind of superior angel, but that he is not the eternal Son of God. Hebrews 1 corrects that error by teaching us that Jesus is in fact the creator the sustainer of the universe, the redeemer of all things. This error that comes from outside the church, that Jesus is not God, is a threat. But there's also a threat that comes from the inside. The temptation in our zeal to affirm that Jesus is God, to lose touch with Jesus as human. And so in chapter 2, we get the balancing act. And the preacher wants to keep us mindful of the absolute importance of the truth that Jesus is fully human. The creator, sustainer, and redeemer, the ruler of the cosmos, is our brother. He was made for a little while lower than the angels. He became fully human and has declared his oneness with us in our suffering and in our human condition. We usually think, that it's a more serious thing to challenge the Christian truth of the divinity of Christ. But I would suggest to you that the more immediate danger for modern Christians is to not really believe in his humanity. In one of my classes, I'll occasionally read an, an editorial from U.S. News about the capture of terrorists This author suggests that it's ethically necessary to torture terrorists 
in order to receive, in order to get withheld information. He says, only a moral idiot would refuse to torture a terrorist. Now, what has surprised me in the three times I've read this to students at a Christian college is that nearly every student in the classroom agreed with the author without hesitation. It didn't even for a moment seem to register as a moral conflict for Christian students. When I pushed the issue by asking whether they could imagine Jesus torturing another human being for information, the student inevitably replies, well, that's not fair. Jesus is God. All Jesus would have to do is read his mind, magically force him to tell the truth. Now, at the heart of the student's response is really an illustration of my point. While most evangelical Christians firmly believe that Jesus is God, we struggle to simultaneously affirm that Jesus is truly human. We might wear our WWJD bracelets, but we still find it hard to accept that Jesus is any real help when it comes to complex moral problems or real temptation. Because after all, he was God. A popular TV show right now is called Smallville. If you don't know the premise, it's about a teenage, the teenage years of Clark Kent, who you all know as Superman. Young Clark is spending his teenage years going through the usual teenage angst about girls and growing up. But his experience is anything but typical. Clark is also gradually discovering that he has superhuman strength, invulnerability, except to kryptonite, kryptonite, X-ray vision, and the ability to fly. And the conflicts that are faced by young Clark Kent have a unique twist, because you as the audience know Clark's secret, that somehow his special abilities are going to get him through every tight spot. I think we Christians tend to do the same with our mental image of Jesus. We might give lip service to the humanity of Jesus, but at the heart of it, I don't think we really believe it. Jesus may have looked human, but underneath, he had something that the rest of us don't have. We might compel people verbally to follow Jesus, to follow his example, but when it comes to situations of real temptation, or serious moral conflict, most of us assume that we're facing something that Jesus never had to face. When it comes to the pain of our human existence, we're left to go it alone, we think, because Jesus had a magical loophole to get out of every tight spot. He had a way out that the rest of us just don't have. Now listen to the words of the writer of Hebrews about Jesus. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every respect as we have, yet he did not sin. Some years back, the movie The Last Temptation of Christ was released to the complaints and criticisms of many Christians. Now, I'm not recommending the film. In my perspective, it was a bad film 
made from a relatively good book. But I do want to suggest that some of our reasons for rejecting the film were probably misguided. All through the film, we're introduced to dream sequences in which the character of Jesus is tempted, tempted to abandon the way of the cross, to pursue his own self-interest. In the story, in the film, these temptations were real and they were intense. And the thing that really bothered many Christians about the movie is that it portrayed Jesus as being really tempted, just as we are. One Christian said to me, I didn't like that movie because it made Jesus look too human. But that is precisely the point of the gospel. Jesus was really human. When Hebrews tells us that he was tempted in every way as we are, we need to take that as true. Otherwise, Jesus is no help to us in time of need. The point of Hebrews 1 is that Jesus is truly God. But the point of Hebrews 2 is not that Jesus is superior to us, that he has a loophole that we don't because of his sinless divinity. The point of Hebrews is that Jesus, Hebrews 2 is that Jesus completely identifies with us in the human plight. That he really does know temptation. That he has cast his lot with us in our brokenness and despair. You remember when Jesus was baptized in the Jordan by John the Baptist. It was a baptism of repentance. And in that act of repentance, Jesus declared his full solidarity with us in our human need. And from that moment, Jesus took the sinfulness of humanity on his shoulders and he carried it to the cross. He was chosen to carry the full burden of humankind, and he confessed our sins on our behalf. And then Jesus is led by the Spirit, not by the devil, by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted. And it is here that he shows us that he really knows what it means to be sorely tempted as we are. This is not play acting, folks. We do not have a mild-mannered Jesus of Nazareth stepping into a phone booth to reveal that under his robes he has a red cape and a big giant G on his chest. Jesus endured suffering and temptation on our behalf. And if we write off the reality of Jesus' humanity and the authenticity of his temptation then we are missing the real hope of the gospel, that Jesus can truly help us endure any temptation because his temptation was as real as any that we face. In some sense, this is not only a real temptation, this is the last temptation, the last temptation of Adam, Hebrews quotes Psalm 8 in reference to Jesus. Now, Psalm 8 is a passage that's written about humanity. It describes the created state of human beings, created a little lower than the angels, crowned with glory and honor, with everything under their feet. But the writer of Hebrews applies this to Jesus 
because Jesus is the true human. He is the paradigm for our humanity. He is the second Adam. He's a second chance for the human race. And so the test that was failed by Adam in the garden is successfully passed by the second Adam in the desert. And for all, after all this, for all those who are in Jesus Christ, temptation loses its real punch and power because we know the truth that the tempter has been finally defeated in his war against humanity, that the outcome of this battle is already guaranteed. The preacher of Hebrews wants to remind us that the temptation of Jesus was not a cakewalk, that he received no special assistance because he was God of the flesh. For the preacher says, since the children have flesh and blood, Jesus also shared in their humanity so that by his death he might destroy the one who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and to free all those who in their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death, because he himself suffered when he was being tempted. He is able to help those who are being tempted. The human Jesus has cast his lot so fully with the human condition that he identifies completely with all our brokenness and all our pain. Rather than standing apart from the mess of humanity with arms folded, clucking his tongue, Jesus looks at sinful and suffer- the sinful world and the suffering humanity and what he sees is brothers and sisters. Jesus doesn't look at the adulterer or the terrorist or the drug abuser and say, there but for the grace of God go I. Jesus looks at these shattered examples of humanity and says, because of the grace of God, I am there. This is my brother and my sister. Thomas Long writes, When the gaze of the eternal Son of God encompasses a criminal on death row, when the glorified Son sees a homeless woman crawling into a cardboard box to keep from freezing at night, when the Lord of all sees a man robbed of dignity and purpose by schizophrenia, when the divine heir of all things sees a mother weeping over the death of a child or a man battling the last savage assault of cancer, or the swollen body of a child slowly starving to death. He doesn't see a charity case, a pitiful victim, or a hopeless cause. He sees a brother. He sees a sister. And he is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. Jesus was made like us in every way so that he could be a perfect representative for us, a perfect mediating high priest for the whole human race. And by sharing in our human existence, Jesus can bring purpose to us in the midst of suffering, and he can bring hope to us in the face of death. When the preacher of Hebrews says that the suffering Jesus has destroyed the power of death over humans, 
we're reminded that the sting of death has been destroyed by the cross, that we've been set free from slavery to the fear of death. Timothy Leary, the former Harvard professor who came into prominence in the 1960s for his experimentation with psychedelic drugs, was diagnosed with terminal cancer in January of 1995. He then turned his impending death into a media event, announcing that he would commit suicide on the World Wide Web. Leary wanted to show America that death was not to be feared, but enjoyed. But as his death drew near, the act wore thin. Ram Das, an original partner in Leary's psychedelic research, recalls looking for long periods into his eyes and seeing no one looking back. Then he remembers seeing how far back Leary was beyond the theater piece of dying. In the end, Leary didn't commit suicide, and he died privately. Carol Rosen, who was with Leary at the end, when he breathed his last, writes that toward the end, Leary became nasty and hateful. Leary shook with fear and sobbed with regrets and loneliness. In the final tragic act of Leary's life, the fear of death stole the show. Yesterday, several of us attended the funeral of our friend Charlie Sizemore. Charlie was a member of the Trinity Church family for over 65 years. He was a man who loved life and a man who loved his Lord. At the funeral, there were a circle of Trinity people standing around laughing about something. And somebody said to me, how typical of Trinity people having a good time at a funeral. Our ability to rejoice at a funeral is not a sign of disrespect to Charlie. It's an outgrowth of our hope. We mourn the loss of a good friend and a dear Christian brother, but we do not mourn as those who have no hope. We can find joy even in the midst of our sadness because we know Charlie's hope was in the one who took up his humanity, who took up his suffering, and who pioneered the way out of the grave. And so we're not in denial about death. We see death all around us. We live in a culture of death, war and crime and abortion. The reality of death is undeniable, but we know that we have been set free from the tyranny of death. We've been set free from slavery to the fear of death. At present, we do not see, we do not see death completely conquered but we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.